Tiberius, it went by both names, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew what he had in mind, that, that what he was going to do. Then Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one of us to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Um, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, I would add, plus women and children. Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with, their, with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Thank you. You may be seated. Mm. Well, this is the fourth sign, miracle, John calls them sign, that he talks about in this gospel. Uh, there were many signs, many miracles, and, and this passage refers to it. A, a great crowd of people followed Jesus uh, into the mountain because uh, they saw him perform all of these signs. He healed the sick, etc. So there were many. John only talks about seven. One of them was in chapter 2 where he turned water into wine. And then, um, you remember that was in Galilee. And then he goes down to Jerusalem and, uh, and there he chases the money changers out of the temple and 
along with the animals that they were selling. And then back north there is the healing of the official sun. He does that again back in Cana. And then the, uh, the next chapter, chapter 5, he's back down in Jerusalem and there is a healing by the pool of Bethesda. And now he's back north up in the region of Galilee feeding 5,000 people. So there are many miracles. John talks about seven and this one is repeated in all four Gospels. You need to sit up and take notice when you see that because that just doesn't happen. I mean, nobody else except John talks about water being turned into wine. Nobody else talks about the healing of this particular official's son. Nobody else talks about the healing of the pool of Bethesda. And of course, um, Mark gives a, an outline of, of the life and teachings of Jesus. And, and it seems that Matthew takes that and then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit adds a whole lot more material that he is aware of. And, and so he adds some things to that. And then Luke does the same kind of thing. He does his research and he comes across a whole lot of stuff and so he has his own stuff. So Luke has some things that Matthew doesn't have. Both of them have some things that Mark doesn't have. And then John's gospel is, tell, is just totally different. It's he has just a whole different approach to the life and the teachings of Jesus. And every once in a while, there you come across a story like this one that appears in all four Gospels. Not only that, Matthew and Mark tell a story of what happened in just a chapter or two after the feeding of the 5,000, they talk about another feeding of the multitude, 4,000. And with a different number of loaves of bread. So there are six tellings in all of Jesus feeding the multitude. You would think that this is something that the gospel writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, really want us to know about. So in all of that, there are some things that are very unique in John's telling about the story of the feeding of 5,000. One of them has to do with the name of the location. He says this happened on the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias in uh, the first verse. And I've probably mentioned this because I, I love telling, I just find it so interesting. The Sea of Galilee is how we often know it. it it's not a sea in the sense of a salt water sea, it's a freshwater lake. It's the largest body of water in Palestine, fresh water, 
It's about uh, five miles wide and about seven miles long. It's a, it's a large body of water. And of course, that flows into the Jordan River. The Jordan River finally, 100 miles later or so, ends up in the Dead Sea. So this is a very, very significant body of water. And it seems like one of the Roman emperors named Tiberius loved this place set up a summer home there and named it after himself. If you're the Roman emperor, you get to do that. <laughs> so he called it Lake or the Sea of Tiberius. Well, the Hebrews had a different name. They called it Lake Genesaret. Because if you were way up on the top of the mountains and looking down over this gorgeous lake, you would see that it's shaped like a harp. Genesaret means harp. It's a harp-shaped lake. So that's one of the things that's unique in, as John tells the story. He also says that there are a lot of uh, healings. That's why people followed him there. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with the disciples, um, and then other, other people followed. Here's, the lake is huge. Capernaum, where Jesus did most of his ministry, was kind of on one side of the lake. And straight across was this beautiful mountain setting where Jesus loved to go. There was a trail going up that mountain. He would go up there with his disciples to pray and to teach. You remember in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that's where they were. He got into a boat and, and went straight across. Um, that was the easier way to get there, probably the quicker way to get there, depending on how much wind there was. Um, or how hard the fishermen in the boat pulled their oars. But you could also get there by walking. You could, you could walk around and then go up the mountain. It would take longer. But if you were highly motivated, you might do that. And you might be highly motivated if you knew that the teacher who, who loved this spot across the lake, and if you, if you knew that he loved to go up this mountain, if you knew that this teacher healed people, that all those people who were sick, maybe those people who were almost hopeless, they might go, you might take them, That you might carry them there if this is your only hope. And so it seems that a lot of people did that. We've seen this sort of thing as we've gone on mission trips in the Dominican Republic. If the village knows that we have a medical team with us, oh my goodness, they line up 
early in the morning. If we are expected to arrive by 10 o'clock, they will start arriving at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. There's a long line of people waiting because they don't have any other shot at getting well or getting medicine or relieving pain. <laughs> One time, Pastor Lubin, who is, I call him a Jesus magnet, He's just amazing. He just draws people to Jesus. Uh, he's incredibly gifted. And as we, we tended to follow the medical team, whoever the medical team went, the evangelism team went, when we got to this village, there were 80 people in line. And... Uh, the nurses needed time to go into the church to set up the benches and all of that, to set out all of their medicines. And so Pastor Lubin, <laughs> much wiser than I am, says, uh, Pastor Bill, let's take advantage of this time. Let's, uh, let's speak to the people. So he's, he's good in Creole. He, he gathers everybody all around. There's a circle of 80 people and he starts giving them the gospel and in about 20 minutes gives them the opportunity to bow their heads, to repent of their sins, and to invite Jesus into their lives. <laughs> they all do. We started a church that day. This still exists. The church in La Romana sends a pastor out there and a team every week. They go out to the village to this, to this church we started. <laughs> pastor Lubin and I went on to another village the next day, and then a few days later we went home. And he laughs. He says, we left them with this mess. <laughs> you know, all these people who, who now need pastoral attention because now they're, they're Christians. They're part of the body of Christ. But they gathered because there were people sick. And that's what happened here. There are thousands of people. They, they'd heard Jesus teach. He had quite a reputation. They must have enjoyed hearing him teach. But the large motivation, maybe there's a chance that my loved one will be healed. So, John tells us about all of that. Then, as Jesus looks over this crowd at the end of the day, he has a heart of compassion for them. <laughs> he mentions, a, this John mentions a couple of the disciples by name. Uh, none of the other Gospel writers mention them. But uh, verse 7 says, Philip, um, uh, let, let's go back to verse 5. Philip, where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? Jesus says to them. And um, that was a test, uh, which Philip failed. <laughs> Uh, not only is it impossible to buy bread because they're out in a wilderness setting, we don't have enough money, Philip said. I mean, if, if 
if we had six months' wages, it wouldn't be enough to give everybody a bite of food. They certainly wouldn't go away full. You wouldn't take care of the problem. I mean, this, Jesus, this is an impossible situation. And then uh, another disciple is mentioned, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And uh, he says, uh, none, none of the other gospels tell us that this was Andrew who pointed out that there was a little boy here. Probably uh, 12 years old, something like that. And, and his mom sent him with his lunch. He's got five loaves of bread and a couple of small fish. Loaves of bread. When I think of a loaf of bread, I, I, I have the wrong image immediately. I, I think of a, of a one-pound loaf uh, that's been baked and then wrapped up in cellophane and sold at Stop and Shop. That's, that's not what he had. When you read loaf, you should probably read English muffin. It's small piece of dough that had been flattened and probably baked over an open fire, open coals. And um, half a dozen of these might make a nice lunch if you had something to go with it. A um, couple of fish, a salted fish, so that they wouldn't spoil. That would be a good thing. And so Andrew says, Jesus, this is all we have. And it's not going to get us far. And so um, Jesus tells them to sit down. John says something else that's interesting. Verse 4. The Jewish Passover festival was near. The reason that that is interesting is that John has already said that a couple of chapters earlier. In chapter 2, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, the Passover festival was near, and Jesus goes into the temple sees what is going on there and is horrified and he kicks out all of the money changers, turns over their table, releases all of their animals and clears some people, cleanses, spiritually cleanses the temple and says this house will not be turned into a den of thieves. And if you heard me preach on that, you'll realize that what was going on there is nothing short of thievery. They were taking ill advantage of people. So that's the other time that John says it was near Passover. It seems like that was a year ago. Jesus is not in, according to John's telling of the story, Jesus is now not in Jerusalem. He is a hundred miles north in that region called Galilee. He has gone across the lake. 
He's gone up that mountain trail and there is this beautiful spot covered with grass. And he has people sit down. You remember what was going on near the Passover in John chapter 2. The, the leaders of Israel, the priests, the teachers, the rabbis, were fleecing the sheep, taking ill advantage of them. In this Passover season, Jesus is in the region of Galilee and he's on a mountaintop, has people sitting down on the grass. Now think of Psalm 23. You, you caused me to lie down on green pastures. They were sitting. You lead me beside the still waters. There surely there were a, there was a mountain stream nearby so everyone could have access to drink. But, but down below was this beautiful, beautiful Sea of Galilee. And you refresh my soul, not just bodies. That's what was going on. Think of Psalm 100. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Here, the, the good shepherd. John goes on to describe him exactly as that. The Jesus, the good shepherd, has his people sitting down on the grass. And he is about to feed them. It's the Passover season. Remember that Passover remembers that time when the people of God were about to escape from Egypt and they were told to take with them bread, unleavened bread, because that would be very compact and it would last them a long time. And so at this Passover... Passover, the feast of Passover, would usher in that week called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And for a week, the Jews would just remember this time and they would eat nothing but unleavened bread. And then, of course, you remember the story of the Old Testament when the bread ran out. God caused manna to come from heaven for his people to eat. This was the Passover season when God's people remembered about the festival of unleavened bread. And it is at this time that Jesus, the good shepherd, takes what is available here? A small boy's lunch. 
and have people are sitting down and they're in groups of 50 to 100. And he takes that bread and he lifts it up before God and he blesses it. And a typical Jewish blessing before mealtime would be, Lord our God, creator of the universe, who causes the fields to bring forth bread. Blessed is your name. So he takes this bread, does the same thing later with the fish. And just as in the wilderness, God provided bread from heaven and then upon request provided meat in the form of quail. So to Jesus, out in this wilderness setting, takes a small boy's few barley loaves and blesses it and feeds all of the people. He does the same thing with the fish. So it's a marvelous story, marvelous setting. At the end, and I won't go into these, this detail, but they wanted to make Jesus king. Well, yeah, you want somebody who can multiply bread. That's who you want as your king. It's uh, in case the enemy comes up against us and, and we're forced to live in the city of Jerusalem, a walled city, and they cut off all access so that we can't go in and out, no problem. We have a king who can supply bread. But why does uh, John tell us a story like that? For one thing, people are hungry all around us, physically, spiritually. Hmm. My son Gregory, many of you know him, lived in California for five years. We took the opportunity to go out and visit him several times in Los Angeles. The number of homeless people is staggering. But it's not just Los Angeles. All around us, you, I'm not going to go into the detail, you, you know. There are people all around us hungry. Um, all around us there are people spiritually hungry. They may not have identified it as hunger, but have a deep craving for something more to life. And they have a hunger, a deep urge, longing for hunger. So there are people all around us who are hungry. We are called upon to act like the servants of Jesus. 
provide food. People are hungry. Jesus expects us to act like him, to have a sense of compassion and love, regardless of color or language or place of origin, whether they are new to this country or hope to become new to this country, whoever they are, we are called upon by the good shepherd to do our shepherding responsibility to provide spiritual food and physical food. By the way, I am so proud of the Dominican Republic mission team. <laughs> I often go on mission trips feeling like a little boy with a couple of fish and a loaf of bread. And it's not nearly enough. Right. God's problem has never been resources. God's problem, if I can use that term, when I use it loosely, <laughs> is people who will act like shepherds. So Jesus calls us to be like the little boy. And by the way, theologically, you have to admit that Jesus didn't need him. Jesus, the, the gospel of John begins with the notion that God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is this God God, man, who has come to earth, he has created heaven and everything and out of nothing. So he doesn't need people. He doesn't need a couple of lousy loaves of bread, fish. But we said it before and it's worth repeating God usually chooses to use people. People like you and me. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. And our Dominican Republic mission teams, we take people to Haiti, same thing. Oh, we have so little to offer. Oh, we take some money. It's not much. And uh, we give of our own selves, our own time for a week, and then we're out of there. But you know what we've, ha what has happened over the years, 30 now, I guess, there is a hospital for one, which 
If you're as old as I am, if you've been on these mission trips, you help to dig the trenches, lay the footings. This hospital now meets the needs of over 200,000 people a year. Yeah, that's what we're clapping for. Way over. Now, that's, a lot of that is outpatient, but it wasn't, didn't happen before. Inpatient, and by the way, they love it when we come, but it's now totally independent of us. It is self-sustaining. Now, there are people in the Dominican Republic, not so much in Haiti, that's a bigger problem, but in the Dominican Republic, there are tourists, there's the sugar industry, there are people who are flourishing, who come to one of the best hospitals by reputation in the Dominican Republic. They come to the hospital that we helped to build. It is totally run by Haitians, not Americans. We have a couple of people like, God bless him, John Powers, who sits on the board, but it's run by Haitians. God takes a little boy's lunch. And as we give it to him, God brings it before the Father. And he just blesses it. So we're called by Jesus to have compassion on people to feed their spiritual and physical needs so much as we are able and we don't have much to offer except ourselves. He calls us to be like this little boy. He wants to use us for his eternal purposes. He calls us to be like Isaiah who says, Lord, here I am. Send me. Let's pray. As we pray, if God is speaking to you about being a person who would give of what little he or she has, If God is tugging at your heart to go to somebody or to some group of people in need, I invite you to say, Lord, here am I. Send me. Heavenly Father, come. Speak to our hearts.
draw us close to you. Remind us of your love and compassion. May we be your people, filled with love and compassion of Christ. Amen.
life, the ups and downs. Joy comes from a consistent and focused relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. I'm about to close out here. I'm going to turn it back over to Kathy, and she's going to... I don't know what she's going to do. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Aren't you? Do you know anyone who's living this level of life? Joy unspeakable. Full of joy. Do you know anyone? How do we live a focused life in Christ? Verse 14, and then I'm, I think I'm done. Kathy, is that okay? <laughs> John 15, verse 14. Watch this. You are my friends if you do what I command. God expects our obedience. He expects it. He doesn't just want us to obey. He demands that we obey. Wow. What kind of life are you living? It is a, is a life that counts. Is Jesus Christ the focus of your life? That means that everything you do centers around him. Everything. I'll close with this one sentence. Christianity, a Christian, disciple, follower of Jesus, is not a part-time life, a sometime life. It is not. It's an all-time life. It's a surrendered life. Giving up of self. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, that is the cry of our hearts this morning. Your people calling. In repentance, forgive us of our self-righteousness, of our pride, of our disobedience, a selfish life. That, Lord, we come before you this morning with one desire upon our hearts, and that's living a focused life in you and through you. Lord, I pray, and this is a bold prayer, whatever it takes, Lord, in the life of your people, professing Christians, your church, whatever it takes to bring us to our knees. and live 
a life centered on you. Put it before us, Lord. Put it before us. And in making that statement, I see one person. I see Jesus Christ. And then I see the power of the Holy Spirit working upon those that are within the sound of these words, this prayer, whether it be in this building or online. Specifically, people online. You're welcome in the house of the Lord. Don't make him a life of convenience. God is calling us to be one in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit moves within those that have been listening, those that have ears to hear. And the Holy Spirit moves them before your throne, on their knees, in repentance. and a desire to abide, to remain in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please stand, respond to how God has spoken to you this morning, whether you be here physically or you're visiting us online. There are people online that will respond to you in prayer, information giving. Whatever it may, you may need in your life this morning, you can find it in Christ Jesus. Kathy?